So what happens if you have a crash of one of these craft, like you say in Roswell, and they find a couple dead aliens and they find a couple dead human babies? How would you react to that in 1947? Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Kevin Knuth. Kevin, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, an absolute pleasure. So we were talking prior to this interview about your organization, UAPX, and how you got into this whole topic. So we're going to go way back when and kind of learn about your origin story, and then we'll work our way up into your work on detecting these anomalous objects in our skies. Yeah, sure. How did I first become interested in UFOs? I guess I have always been interested in them. I was 12 years old when Star Wars came out and grew up watching Star Trek. I remember not being able to sleep. Maybe I was four or five years old. Not being able to sleep would come out and into the living room by my parents and they would let me lie down on the couch and they would very often have Star Trek on. And I used to like watching that, although I was very confused about why there was a giant elf on the Enterprise, but that was Spock. <laughs> but I, I thought he was an elf. <laughs> yeah, so, but I was, yeah, I was 12 when Star Wars came out. And around that time, there was the TV show with Leonard Nimoy, which was, and now I've just blanked on the name of it. In, um, in, in Search Of? In Search Of, that's the one, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> My mind just went blank. Yeah, we, the, around, you know, and that would, that would, I think that would usually come around on around 6 p.m. around our dinner time. So we usually had that running while eating dinner or something or just afterwards. And very often there were UFO stories there. So I've always been interested in them. And it wasn't until I was in graduate school, I grew up in Wisconsin. And I went to get my master's degree at Montana State in Bozeman, Montana, just about an hour's drive north of Yellowstone Park. And I was there. So this would have been the fall of 1988. I was there for about two weeks. We were about two weeks into the beginning of the semester. And there was a cattle mutilation one night in, in a ranch near Bozeman where two cows were killed and they were surgically manipulated and it was very bizarre. And there were lots of UFO sightings that night. And it was, this, so this was all over the news and people are a little worked up about it because it's either, mm-hmm. it's in their minds, it's either aliens or Satanists. And that this is, <laughs> so this was, and so we, the new graduate students in the physics department were discussing this because you know, we've just, all of us have just moved to this new school in this new place. And we have the prospects, you know, we're all on a PhD program. So we have the prospects for being there for five years, you know, so we're, we've just moved to this new place. We're going to live there for five years. And within two weeks, you have a cattle mutilation, like, which is really bizarre. So we're very actively discussing this in the hallway, trying to figure out what kind of bizarre place we just moved to. And we, clearly disturbed one of the professors down the hall. And I'm not sure who it is, and I wouldn't name him anyway, because I just started, I didn't know all of the professors yet, but I I can guess who it probably was, one of two people. And he came down the hall to find out what we were talking about. And uh, we told him about, we were concerned about this cattle mutilation. And he, 
he tried to reassure us. He said, oh, you know, this happens from time to time. And, you know, there's always an investigation and they never really figure anything out. And then people forget about it until it happens again, of course, which was not at all reassuring. <laughs> right. And then he says, but you know what's really strange? He says, I have friends who work at the Air Force Base up at Malmstrom Air Force Base in northern Montana, and they have problems there with UFOs flying over the nuclear weapon sites, the IBM missiles, and shutting them down. And we politely listened, and when he walked away, we laughed because we thought, this is the, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. How in the world could that possibly be true? How could you have UFOs shutting down our nuclear missiles and we aren't on red alert or, you know, about this? And so we just didn't believe it. I mean, and so it kind of became a running joke that year. Anytime somebody would tell a strange story or say, yeah, this strange thing happened. And then somebody else would chime in at the end. But you know, what's really strange. There's UFOs that are shutting down. <laughs> Your missiles right. and we all would laugh, right? So that was a running joke that year. So it stuck in my mind, but when I didn't take it seriously, I mean, how can you? And so it wasn't until years, years, I mean, like 30 years later, I'm here, I'm a professor here at the University of Albany in New York. I was teaching an astronomy class. This would have been around 2015. So we're still about two years before 2017 when the New York Times you know, ran the article that out of the ATIP program. So it's around 2015, and I'm preparing for lectures for my astronomy class. And some of the students wanted me to talk about the possibility of aliens living, you know, other intelligent beings in the universe and the possibility that they could come here. And I really didn't know what to discuss. And I was just poking around on the internet looking for ideas, certainly not information, because that's not what you can do. I mean, nothing reliable that you should teach in a class <laughs> from the internet. But I just wanted some ideas of, is there anything solid I can talk about? Mm -hmm. And, you know, since then, I've done research on this and done simulations and done work on this that I can talk about later or another time. And When the United States and China clash, the world will never be the same especially when forces beyond reality threaten to intervene. What if the United States went to war with the People's Republic of China? How would these rivals fight for supremacy on land, sea, air, and across the stochastic streams of time? What wonder weapons would be unleashed? What horrors would emerge from the irradiated sludge of the South China Sea? What heroes would rise and forever change the course of history? Tread into the deepest and darkest dimensions of the multiverse, gaze through a kaleidoscope of fractured realities, and bear witness to the disturbing visions of World War III from today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Weird World War, China. Available now from Bain Books at Bain.com. So, so I'm poking around and I stumbled on the press conferences that Robert Hastings held in about 2010, where he had five or six former Air Force personnel or contractors all talking about their encounters with UFOs at nuclear weapon sites. And the first speaker was Robert Salas, who was at Malmstrom Air Force Base, mm -hmm. the very same Air Force Base that my professor told us about 30 years earlier, right? So this press conference is 2010, and I heard about all of this 
you know, 30 years earlier from one of my professors. And I'm listening to this and I'm just blown away because I'm realizing it's sinking in that, no, this is real. And this has been right. going on, this has been going on the whole time. Salas's story is from like 1965 or 1966. Yeah, 1967, 60, <clears throat> I think. Maybe it was 67, yeah. yeah. But it's just yeah. right there in the mid to late 60s. That, that's almost 60 years ago now, and these events still happen. You know, when, mm -hmm. when the congressional hearings, you know, this was brought up at the congressional hearings with Crush this summer, and one of the Congress, you know, people said, oh, I didn't, you know, wanted more information on this. I'm like, how, how are you just learning about this now <laughs> when this has been going on for 60 years? Well, um, you want me to answer that? Because <laughs> no, I can. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know the answer. I know the answer to that. But I mean, it's and it's the same, you know, the answer is really the reason why we thought it was ridiculous in the first place, because, you know, it was just too hard to believe and people didn't transfer that information. Nobody took it seriously. To advertise on Through a Glass Darkly, email throughglassdarkly ads at gmail.com. And that's part of the answer. Yeah, I mean, there, there was yeah. also a systemic campaign, right? To, yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, to, conspiracy to theory was invented. Sort of it's a term invented by the CIA, right? Uh, yeah. Anybody who brought this stuff up was systemat you know, systematically targeted and shamed for even thinking about it, which is why most people have this natural laugh reflex when you talk about right. it. Yeah, we've all been, all our whole lives, we've been told that this is, ridiculous and that that we shouldn't pay any attention to it and it's laughable and we're now finding out that it's not at all ridiculous in fact it's quite serious and now we get to a point where we are you know our navy is having to deal with these things in some cases on a daily basis our navy has to deal with these things we're finding out that they're real and we don't know anything about them the level of ignorance is really just irresponsible at this point. And it's a big problem. And that's what I felt when I was watching that press conference. I thought, we're in trouble. This is a serious problem that no one's taking seriously and no one knows anything about. And most people believe it isn't even real. I thought, this is just dangerous. That's like wandering around in Africa, not believing that lions are real. You know, right. and I'm just going to go take a hike through this field, you know, <laughs> along the, along the tree line. Yeah. You know, yeah. And just yeah. hope nothing happens because nothing's out that. there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a very, very bad situation. By the way, very, very quick story. I have a friend who had a story like that, literally with a lion. He was in Iraq and they were on the banks, I think, of the Euphrates River or the Tigris River. And they had to bivouac that night <clears throat> in this relatively lush area it's it's lush around the riverbanks and they kind of wake up the next morning and when his men are relieved i guess the group relieving him was like oh did you see the lion <laughs> my friend's like the the what he's like yeah there's a lion loose in this area it's just been around for like there's been a lion out there and we didn't know about it <laughs> like well you know nothing's happened so yeah that that, that kind of stuff happens in real it life does. too yeah it does. anyway that's another here there it was with my father in the pantanal which is the swampland south of the amazon 
in Brazil. And we had asked the guides there, the nature guides, whether you know, we had a chance of seeing jaguar. And they said, oh, no, they're very rare. He goes, I've been working here for 10 years. I've never seen a jaguar here. So one night I wanted to go look for animals. And I said, I'm just going to take a walk around the cabins here and just see if I can see anything. And I had a flashlight and this and Tom. And and I saw I found some capybara, which were a little shocking because they're about as tall as I am when they, they right. were lying and down. They, and I, they were lying down. like rats as tall as you are, basically, right? I saw the eyes near the ground, the eye shine near the ground. And then it stood up to about my height. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a problem. And then realized it was a capybara and was I was going to be fine. But it was, you know, at that point, I decided I should probably go in. I don't really know this area well. And, you know, I know a lot about wildlife. And um, I've been a lifelong bird watcher, but I thought, oh, I'm pretty uninformed. I should probably not be wandering around here at night. And then uh, the next day, actually, it was either the next day or the day after we took a river trip. And we were just, oh, about, we were a half a mile from the, the camp we were staying at, going along some of the trails. And the guide leans back and he whispers, Jaguar. And he points, and there's a jaguar walking along the trail that we would hike along, right? <laughs> just, and incredibly rare sight, and it was amazing to see one. And I thought, wow, there are jaguar here. <laughs> really, <laughs> here I'm wandering around at night with a flashlight, you know, this, um, my, me, my I'm a tasty little morsel <laughs> looking for animals. I <laughs> well, I mean, even, even seeing the eyes at night with the capybara would have freaked me out. But Yeah, that's about when I turned, I decided, all right, I, I'm in over my head. I need to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, when it stands up and it's as high as you are, like, all right, this is a different game. So, Yeah, but yeah, but going back to UFOs or I'm going to call them UFOs. The UAP fine. nonsense yeah. is it's it was done just to get people's just so that Congress would be would listen. And so the, these are flying objects. We know enough about them that they're flying objects and unidentified. It works. But our level of ignorance is incredibly high. And, you know, I've even asked people who have been involved in these programs, you know, how many craft do we have operating on Earth at a given time? And nobody can tell me. Nobody knows. And I said, well, can you give me a ballpark? Is it 100, 1,000, 10,000? I'm like, no, no idea. There's probably millions of flights a year if, if they, you know, given how often they crash. Right. And that's a whole, that is a whole other interesting topic, right? I mean, the, well, I mean, there would have to be an obscene number of flights in order for that to happen if, to an advanced if, civilization. If, if, if half of those crashes are real, then there are many, many more craft active on Earth than probably on the number of airplanes, on the order of the number of jet airplanes we have. And oh, more, like dwarf. More than that. Yeah. 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 It has to be more than that. Unless somebody once suggested that perhaps this is their, perhaps they've just arrived at Earth and this is their first time flying on a planet. You know, if you're going through interstellar space and that's your whole life, and then you get mm -hmm. to Earth and now you've got a pilot on a planet, everything's a hazard. And I thought, well, that's an interesting perspective. That could explain why the crash rates are higher. But Or they're um, intergalactic teenagers, who knows, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, this is one of the arguments that Carl Sagan had against UFOs being extraterrestrial craft. He said, I can't believe that there's a craft arriving from interstellar space every week. And I heard that quote, and I thought to myself, I thought, you're absolutely right, Carl. 
Now take it one step further <laughs> because yeah. they aren't arriving here from interstellar space every week. They live here. Yeah, they're from they're here. Operating. They're operating yeah. here. They're not just arriving from interstellar space. And you can tell from the reaction times. I mean, how long does it take for Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster with a tsunami? You know, by the next day, you've got UFOs hanging out. The same thing happened in Chernobyl. The thing, same thing happens when you have large ship movements. Within 24 hours, there are UFOs. That means you've got light travel time. You could go out a half a day, light one half of a light day away from Earth, and then they can have to travel back if they're going the speed of light. So that puts a radius of one light day or a half a light day around Earth means that they're within that radius. So mm -hmm. the only thing that's in, in this radius is Earth itself and the solar system. So they're here. They're already here in number. And we don't know how big that number is. That ought to be a concern. That ought to be a big concern. And what do we so, mostly spend our time doing? Arguing over whether they're real. I mean, or are they craft or this? And meanwhile, the government, you know, who, the people who do know things don't tell us anything. And so I hope to God they're doing their jobs. But I don't think they are. I don't have any evidence of that. Yeah, and I don't even think if they wouldn't allow Admiral Wilson to see the, the yeah. data. Well, well, they might be doing their jobs, but their job isn't looking out for the people of Earth. <laughs> their job is looking out for some other special interest. And yeah, it's a problem. Maybe, unless the secret is... Uh, here is a complete, utter speculation. Okay, so I'm not saying this is real. I'm just saying that utter speculation. What kind of a secret would you protect at all costs and not allowed to get out because it would cause so much damage that it's just not worth it. And the only thing that I can come up with, at least quickly come up with, is if, let's just say the, the UFO thesis, let's, let's accept Michael Masters' time travel thesis, okay? Right. And let's say there's a civilization that, a future civilization that these craft represent. And in order for that civilization to exist, there has to be a cataclysm that their ancestors survive. Right. But three quarters of humanity perishes in the wake of that calamity, whatever it is. That's not a secret you'd want coming out. Right. Yeah. You can't, you can't let that get out. I, I could I could appreciate burying that one, but that's the only that's, one. And that's I can one of the of. that's one of the hypotheses out there. And there's, you know, and you know, we've got to keep all the hypotheses on the table. That's one of the problems. The other one would be something to the effect of "we're not in charge," right? So there's are you are you familiar? I don't want to delve too far, but from this, but are you familiar with remote viewing and all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. You familiar with Pat Price? Mm -hmm. Apparently, Daz Smith just came into, he's another a modern day remote viewer, came into possession of a 40 page document that Pat Price did on the remote viewing exercise of bases on Earth, right? So you've probably heard this before, like the Mount Zeal in Australia, Mount Hayes in Alaska. Mount Perdido in Spain, and then there was another one in Zimbabwe.
regardless of that, in in conjunction with doing that exercise, he also identified by name or by position various people in structures of power, and this is in 1972, who were quote-unquote compromised by non-human intelligences. Whatever that means, I don't know. But it's never been released because it has names and things like that. They would have to redact a bunch of things. But that could be another. And again, it's remote viewing. You can't really verify it, at least in that particular instance. But it was Pat Price, who is probably the most, beside Ingo Swan, is probably one of the most talented remote viewers to ever have lived, at least in recent memory. So again, that's just another potential, you know, we're not in charge. But would that surprise you, really? <laughs> no, it wouldn't surprise me, actually. <laughs> no. Well, they, there's, yeah, there's a lot to discuss. I had done a number of simulations. I did a set of simulations to simulate the process of galactic colonization. I was trying to understand how easy is it to get from one planet to another? How big can a domain be? How far could a spacefaring civilization really reach over a period of reasonable periods of time? And so mm -hmm. I did about a million simulations. And I can talk about this in more detail later, perhaps. But what I found that is if you have somebody who discovered Earth and they were actively colonizing star systems, then Earth is well within their domain already. If you see them here now, they probably found Earth something like 200 to 300,000 years ago and have been here the whole time. But in that case, the Earth would be well within their domain. That means that this star system belongs to their domain. Alpha Centauri also belongs to them. <laughs> Sirius belongs to them. Most of the nearby stars that you see all are within their domain. So, yeah, we could very easily be owned. And then maybe I'll save that for when we get into that kind of discussion about those details, because that leads to some other interesting concerns. But yeah, there are some secrets that are bigger that you might want to hide. The one other one that struck me at one point, I mean, Ro the whole Roswell crash story is very bizarre and clearly caused a lot of panic amongst the military was clearly very concerned, right? And if these things were really just balsa wood, aluminum reflectors with devices to pick up Soviet nuclear bombs going off, they're not going to be that worried about the public seeing these balsa wood aluminum contraptions. And certainly not detain the sheriff who went out and investigated him by himself. They certainly wouldn't detain him for five days and question him for five days. Their military response to that was way over the top. So clearly something really bizarre happened there. And I've often wondered if now it's, you know, if you want to go down the rabbit hole of alien abductions and what's known about that, Professor John Mack from Harvard had studied alien abductees, and he was able to learn that what's usually reported, what's most commonly reported, you know, we all joke about the anal probe, go watch, you know, South Park, and you can have a good laugh about you know, Cartman being anally probed by aliens. But that's not what they're up to. What they typically do is they're taking eggs and sperm. Mm -hmm. And about 60% of the people who are abducted in that manner and by the little gray aliens report babies on board. They're often given babies to hold 
before they're put back, like 60% of the cases. That's very bizarre. And that's not something people would just make up. And it was not commonly known. And so it's one of these things that makes you think twice. Now, imagine that's the case. Imagine, again, wild speculation at this point. That's all we have to figure out what the bigger secret is. But, you know, what if alien abductions are real? And what if they are, you know, using humans to grow other humans and we have babies on board for what purpose? I don't know. And that would be part of the worry, right? And people do report seeing babies on board. So what happens if you have a crash of one of these craft, like you say in Roswell, and they find a couple dead aliens and they find a couple dead human babies? How would you react to that in 1947? The aliens alone are freaky enough, but finding dead humans on board, especially children and babies, you would bury that. You would bury that as deep as possible. And so especially if, especially if you didn't know whether they were synthesized or stolen. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't know what the situation was. So right. you, know, you would it would be one of that would be a thing that you would say, we can't let any we can't even risk that that gets out. And so that's another possibility. There's a few scenarios that you can imagine that would cause that level of classification. And yeah, it's all speculation at this point. You know, we have to wait. We're going to have to wait and find right. out. And maybe we won't find out what the bigger secret is. But I think you're right. I think there's a bigger secret, a bigger problem. All right. So going back to the beginning of the <laughs> interview, 30 years later, 2015, you start doing work on this topic. Take us from there. Yeah. So 2015, I realized, you know, it sinks into my mind that, wow, this is actually real and we have a problem. And I just started researching it more carefully. I started reading and trying to figure out what's actually been going on, what's actually known. Have there been any scientists involved publicly? And I learned about people like James McDonald and Hill who have done work on this. And so I just dove in to try to educate myself as best I could. And and that's a difficult thing to do because, as you know, we would say in physics, the signal to noise ratio is really, really low. There's a lot of crazy noise out there. Mm -hmm. And the anything, you know, the reliable signal is really, you know, it's difficult to sift through this and decide whether this is reasonable or that's reasonable. And and so much of it isn't reasonable. So it's difficult. And and I'm you know, at this point, coming to terms with the fact that, yeah, some of the things that are reported are just unreasonable. <laughs> and but we have and to it might be deliberately so, right? If you were an alien civilization and you were doing these sorts of things, you'd want to throw people off. You, you know, you want to have, you know, them show up as clowns so nobody believes your story, right? You know, just like <laughs> random things like that, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're dealing with an intelligence here. So it's not the same as studying other natural phenomena, because the intelligence itself could be trying to throw you off. Mm -hmm. So not only is the government throwing out misinformation and disinformation, the non-human intelligences can also be throwing out misinformation and disinformation. So so it's difficult to sort through this. So, so I was busy trying to educate myself and then you know, was it December 17th, 17th or 16th, 2017, right in mid-December, the New York Times article came out about the ATIP program and that we had been studying UFOs for several years, at least, 
And I saw that and I thought, yeah, I have to study these things for real. I'm going to have to dive in as a scientist and actually study these things. And that's pretty much where the transition happened. And what was the first thing that you did or first project that you worked on to examine these things? It was difficult trying to figure out what I could do because, you know, I don't have any of my own data, which is really the ideal situation. I would prefer to be in a situation where I've collected the data, I've calibrated the equipment, I've set it up the way it ought to be set up for an experiment so that you have control over the situation. And that takes a lot more work and takes money and time and and people. And I wasn't in that situation in 2017. So I looked to see what is there anything that is rather relatively trustworthy that I can go back and pinpoint and try to learn something about these craft? So I focused on their speeds and accelerations. I thought, can I estimate what types of speeds and accelerations these things move at? And I started looking at that. And what I didn't know at the time was that Robert Powell and Peter Reale of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies were also doing something similar. Mm -hmm. So I had done some of this work that I hadn't published yet. And I went to the first SCU meeting, the first uh, where the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, where we had a bunch of scientists and engineers come together and talk about what they know about these things. And I saw Robert Powell and Peter Reale's discussion on speeds and accelerations, and I talked to them afterwards, and I said, I've been doing calculations too. I have some information. Maybe we should team up and write a scientific paper together. So that's pretty much was the first project. And that was a really, turns out it was a really smart thing to do. Of course, I fell bass backwards into it. <laughs> I was just trying to figure out anything I could do, but but it As was good. One does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was good because it served to get other scientists involved. Other scientists looked at that and looked at those calculations. And they're not hard calculations to do. Somebody who's taken a first-year physics class should be able to do those calculations if they're paying attention. And at one point, you know, another astronomer had said that those they were simple calculations trying to, you know, degrade them in some way. But I pointed out in responding to that, that the fact that they're simple means that you can't argue against them. They're not wrong. They're, they're right. <laughs> what we found was pretty amazing that these craft are accelerating at accelerations up to 5,000 times the acceleration of gravity. So 5,000 G accelerations. The, the range we found goes from about 80 Gs to 5,000 Gs of the cases we looked at. And the speeds, the top speed that we estimated was from the 2004 Nimitz encounter, and that was about 45,000 miles an hour. Hmm. So this is when the tic-tac-shaped object was observed by Senior Chief Kevin Day to drop from 28,000 feet to sea level in 0.76 seconds. So to do that, the minimal acceleration at least had to accelerate at a constant rate halfway and then decelerate the the rest of the way. You could you could accelerate much faster and then just cruise down at a much higher speed, but mm-hmm. you can estimate the minimum acceleration, which is what we did. We thought that would be more compelling because of the minimal acceleration, the smallest acceleration possible is much higher than what you'd expect. You know that these things are really extraordinary. 
Mm -hmm. And that's what we found. So the thing basically accelerated at about 5,000 Gs of acceleration to the midpoint, and then would have to decelerate at about 5,000 Gs to stop at the sea surface. But that midpoint, you're traveling about 45,000 miles an hour, which is the speed of the New Horizons probe that went past Pluto. That's how fast that probe's coming. So can these be spaceships? Absolutely, they can be spaceships. I mean, no question about it. And in fact, I often poke a little fun at skeptics who say, why does everybody always think that these things are spaceships? And I now can say it's very simple because they move as fast as spaceships move. That's mm -hmm. all there is to it. Um, we know that now. We have enough data for this. And in fact, Daniel Combe, who was from the Niels Bohr Institute, another physicist who, who had read that paper and was inspired by it, got the radar data for the Japanese airline case over Anchorage, Alaska from 1986. And that 747 was followed for about 40 minutes by a large UFO. And he estimated the accelerations from the radar data to be on the order of 10,000 Gs in several cases. And the top speed there is something like 250,000 miles an hour. That's fast. <laughs> That's really fast. How fast yeah, is like 250,000 miles an hour? You can get to the moon in about 50 minutes at that speed. Now, if we built anything that could travel that fast, it would basically vaporize in the air because of the... Well, friction. the accelerate. Yeah, <clears throat> this is one of the unbelievable things about the whole problem is that Moving at speeds like that through the air, we would be a fireball. There'd be sonic booms, you'd be a fireball, it would be vaporized. That doesn't happen with UFOs. So we really honestly don't understand what's going on. It's and, part and of it. I mean, those accelerations on top of it, yeah. no, no life form is going to survive those accelerations. And most equipment won't survive those accelerations. So uh, we honestly don't know what's happening. I don't think there's anybody who's really looked at this that thinks that they're moving in a conventional sense. They're not. Is, is part of this a reference, a reference frame issue where relative to us, they're not, I mean, they're, they appear to us to be traveling at the rates of speed that they are, but there's some sort of gravitational effect. That, well, there's a, there's a few possible yeah. solutions. And again, these are, this is speculation. We don't have data to support any, you know, support or rule out any of these, but mm. could there be some kind of warp bubble where they're basically manipulating gravity and you've got some kind of, you know, space-time bubble around them so that they're protected from the air? They're not really moving through the air, right, in that sense. So that's one possible explanation. Another is that they're not moving at all. They're literally teleporting or teleporting in multiple steps, something like that. There's there's several other hypotheses that are even more far out, but which aren't really worth mentioning because we don't have data to, to handle any of them at this point. But that's one of the things that, you know, some of us would like to get data on. So, you know, can we get, you know, look at spectra from these things so that we can see blue shifts and red shifts that would tell you something about whether space time is being warped? You know, that's one thing we could do. Now, in analyzing some of these objects, what are some of the common characteristics that you've seen or studied or collected? So, for instance, some of this stuff was released in the Arrow report, right? About, I think, like 8, eight to 13 gigahertz signals, things. So, 
we're talking x-rays gamma rays cosmic rays you know what sorts of data have you collected in the frequency band things like that oh right so we don't have any radio data so the gigahertz signals are going to be they're still in the radio range we do have some data from a particle detector called the cosmic watch developed by mit but it's not clear that we've actually encountered any of these objects yet so we're we're not sure that we're just prepared to do to collect that kind of data so what commonalities do they have from what has been reported would be that these things accelerate and the ATIP program called it instantaneous acceleration as well there was their short name for it i would as a physicist i really glitch at the term instantaneous by instantaneous you mean that it's so fast you can't measure how fast they accelerated right. to that you know got move accelerating how fast the jerk was which would be the technical term so the third derivative of motion yeah so these things accelerate very quickly their speeds are very high they don't seem to interact with the air there's no wind there's no sonic boom there's no fireball and that's not understood they're also associated with water they're often seen going into water coming out of water and they can move and going into water does not slow them down and so over Aguadilla, Puerto Rico, there's a small UFO that was tracked that flew over the airport and then went out over the ocean and went into the water, was cruising along about five feet in diameter, about kind of ellipsoidal shaped, was cruising around at about 100 miles an hour, not exceptionally fast. But when it got to the water, it actually dives into the water. There's no splash. It goes in. And from the video, it comes out shortly after, and you can track its speed underwater, and it's slowed down to maybe 85 miles an hour underwater. 85 miles an hour underwater is really fast <laughs> already. Um, but we have data from a sonar operator from New Zealand, who in the 1980s tracked a large USO underwater craft that was about 150 feet wide and 800 feet long that the speeds and accelerations I estimated to be the accelerate minimum acceleration was on the order of about five G's underwater and it got up to speeds between 1,500 miles an hour to 3,000 miles an hour underwater. So these things don't seem to be interacting with the water either. Mm -hmm. So that's consistent with what we see with the air. So there's some consistency in the observations, which is interesting. But the problem is that th there's more questions. How does sonar working? Sonar works by sending out a sound wave, which in water is a pressure wave. Right. In air, it's mostly a displacement wave, but because the water is much more dense, it's a pressure wave. So the pressure wave is happening. Pressure wave happens from things banging into things, right? So the atoms are banging into, the water molecules are banging into something. So for the sonar to bounce off the craft as it's approaching the ship, it has to be bouncing off of it. So those water molecules have to be interacting with the ship for the sonar to work. But the ship doesn't act like it's interacting with the water. So we really, we really have no idea what's going on. It's very, very puzzling. Has anyone from the government ever approached you about your work or asked you to do any you know exactly I haven't, I haven't haven't been specifically approached i mean i i had conversations with um government people at 
the SALT meeting that I was at recently at Stanford. And our UAPX team has briefed several government organizations. We met with Senator Gillibrand's team twice, the House of Representatives Armed Services Committee and others. And I shouldn't talk too much about that. But the one thing that came up rather consistently, the question was, what are your abilities to observe underwater? Underwater came up every time. Mm -hmm. What's going on in the oceans? That was the big concern. And, and I was telling people at Seoul, the Seoul meeting three weeks ago, that this is the one aspect of UFOs or UAP that is ignored, and that's the underwater aspect. You know, so as little as we know about UFOs in the air, we know far less about USOs underwater. Yeah, that's and, actually one of the questions I would have asked Tim Gallaudet was... But he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been able to answer. It would have been he wouldn't have been, been yeah. a class. He, he would have been a classified. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Admiral but, Admiral Gallaudet was one one of the people that I talked to, and I provided him with my calculations for the New Zealand case and this, so that you know, hopefully that will give him some more information to go on. Because at this point, they need. I mean, the more information they get, the better. But but the question I would have asked him, even though he <clears> wouldn't have been able to answer, which is why I didn't ask him is uh, much like we saw at Malmstrom, I'd be very curious to see how many contacts nuclear submarines get. And I don't mean just nuclear-powered submarines. I mean submarines. Missile-carrying submarines, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, submarines carrying submarine-launched ballistic missiles. So I imagine probably quite a lot, but... I would, would imagine so too. Yeah. That's probably a whole other problem that we don't know about yet. <laughs> but the Russians, when they released information, was it maybe 10 years ago now? About two thirds of their cases from the Russian Navy were, had to do with underwater UFOs. So the water aspect is critical and it is probably the least understood aspect of UFOs. Now, now, of course, you wonder, now, now starting to think as a scientist, now I'm thinking as a scientist, so these things can move through air unimpeded somehow. They can move through water unimpeded somehow, yet sonars don't Earth. work. That doesn't yeah. work. So can you go through solids? Can they, can they go through solids? And has that been observed? And I've asked around and the answers are sketchy. I don't think I think very little is known about this. There, I, I can give few, I can give you an I can give you an example, but the answer is yeah. There's yes. a few cases where people claim to see UFOs flying into mountains, but it's really just a handful of examples that I know of. So here's one really quick. So the DIA did a study. I want to say it's in the late '80s, early '90s. Again, this is with their remote viewers project Stargate. So the three remote viewers who were involved were David Morehouse, Mel Riley, and Ed Dames. They were observing activity in Chaco Canyon, New Mexico. So they sent this team physically out there to observe that area. And at night, they were able to observe UAPs kind of flying in. It was lights. Let's just call it lights. Flying into mountains basically wow and then later on they also observed portals over pueblo alto which is a very specific place and the way that it was described to me because you know i interviewed david morehouse about it 
this portal would just open kind of in the sky and he said it looked like cellophane over stars <laughs> and then it would you know be open for about 10 minutes and then it would close he, at the time he didn't see anything go in or out of it but there's definitely a phenomenon out there that obviously was not widely reported so yeah i think there's probably a case to be made and i think at skinwalker ranch they observe this sometimes too right that so. could be I don't, i'm not sure yeah but i've heard uh, several other cases yeah but they're but not but not many but given the fact that they can move through air like they do and water like they do it would not surprise me that you know if they could go through solids as well well so i mean at the end of the day solids are waves too right like the Bruegli's equation and like we're just vibrating waves of electrons and you know whatever yeah well i mean and, and the solids just it's just more dense than water that's all <laughs> it's not right. it's right. not that different it's the same types of stuff yes yeah, so if you can go through water easily you might be able you, you they very well can have to because we don't know how they're doing it that's really why i wanted to find evidence on that because once you know that they can go through solids that could limit the hypotheses that you're playing with but what's this well, there's a bit of an ignorant question on my part so my apologies in advance but why is there a lot of discussion about terahertz frequencies in this topic is there anything behind that there is discussion on terahertz frequencies i think there's a few reasons one is that the there is a sample of material that was anonymously mailed to several people that's purportedly from ufo hall mm -hmm. that its makeup is basically layers of magnesium and bismuth and i don't remember exactly who i know one person who claimed this i'm not going to name the people but that if you beam if you aim terahertz radiation at it that this thing will resonate at those frequencies so i think that the thing was acting like a terahertz waveguide or something mm. now terahertz is a higher frequency radio wave right so it's in the uh it's a, you're you're getting up into higher frequencies and the thing that's interesting about that is there are no easy mechanisms for generating terahertz radiation you basically how do you make radio waves you have an antenna and you drive an oscillating current into the antenna and that basically makes the charges move back and forth and when the charges are accelerating which happens when they change directions then they radiate electromagnetic radiation so so the frequency at which the charge is moving back and forth is basically the frequency of the electromagnetic waves that propagate out and the problem is you can't drive charges in a wire fast enough to get into the terahertz range that's basically what's going on so the terahertz range is this whole window it's a whole window of the electromagnetic spectrum that we really don't have access to we don't have good detectors because we can't detect terahertz radiation this way but a terahertz electromagnetic wave is not going to make charges oscillate very quickly in metals so so we can't detect them easily and we can't also generate it we're starting to be able to 
I don't know what frequency they're at, but I think they're in the terahertz range. The scanners at the airport, when you stand there and put your arms up and they scan you, that we're all going to go through for over Christmas for those who are traveling, that's terahertz radiation. But I think it's on the lower end. So it's on the boundary of that region in the electromagnetic spectrum that we can't access. And I imagine they take a tremendous amount of energy to create, right? Yeah, well, it can take, I mean, it takes us, I mean, you can, the frequency of the radiation isn't, I mean, if you're, you're generating classically, so you can put as much power into it as you want, right? So you can have a super powerful radio station or a weak radio station. So it's similar with that, but it's not so much, I don't think a power issue is it's, we just don't have the techniques available to move charges fast enough to create those frequencies of radiation. Okay. All right. Any final words for the audience in terms of investigating this highly enigmatic topic? I'm not sure. I think we covered a lot. <laughs> we covered a lot of information, right? We we went through a lot of speculation as well and, and covered a lot yeah. of information. I mean, at this point, where you know, what can be done at this point, I think that we, in general, the community relies way too much on trying to get information from the government. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's, look, they've not been forthcoming, they're not going to be forthcoming. And even when they're being forced to, they're not being forthcoming. So when the UAP task force was trying to collect data to put in the task force report, there were several government agencies that just didn't respond. They refused to respond. And so, I mean, that's to Congress. They didn't respond to Congress. That's a problem. I mean, that's a serious government problem that we have here. This is a democracy and they are answerable to us and they're not answering. And that's a big problem. And I think this is one of the things that Representative Burchett is daggummit mad about, right? <laughs> He's, and he should be. And I'm glad to have him in Congress for that reason, because this is a problem. What other things are being hidden? What other things are being done that we don't know about? I, that I have, you have to worry about that. I worry about that, especially with, we've already mentioned crashes. You know, how many crashes have there been? And have there been any survivors? Have there been biologics on board? According to Grush, we have biologics. Well, were they all dead? If there were any survivors, what happened to them? You know, if they're being held in captivity, then we have prisoners. And they're being held without reason. If we killed them, then that's murder. And both are acts of war. So that's a big problem. Did we bring any of these craft down? We know that the Russians have tried to do this. Mm -hmm. Did we bring craft down? If we brought craft down, that again is an act of war. Are we committing these crimes? These would be war crimes, right? Some of these things. So are we committing these crimes right now? No, no. they're not human intelligence. So maybe not beholden to the Geneva Convention, and we might be able to squeak away around lawyers, but we might be able to get around lawyers on Earth. The non-humans might could give a rat's ass about what lawyers on earth think. If they see this as an act of war, we could have a big problem on our hands. So I'd like to know what our leaders are doing about it. What is known? What has been done? What is being done? And is it reasonable? 
we don't have any of these answers. We don't know any of this. And I think we could, you, we could end up in a whole world of trouble based on the actions of a few individuals who aren't beholden to anyone in our government and are given tons of money to just run around and do whatever the hell they want. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. Or they're not given tons of money. They make their own money through illicit programs or something like that. (laughs) Well, as they have in the past, like Iran Contra was all about that sort of thing. No, that's really true. Yeah. No, these are real issues that, you know, that people should be worrying about. And I think that, you know, this is still treated like kind of like a joke. Even the news media still doesn't cover these issues. And in my mind, from what I know at this point, the presence of non-humans on Earth interacting with humans is probably the number one biggest issue we humans face ever throughout history. This is the biggest issue we've ever faced. And we're barely paying attention. You know, yeah, we're worried about the war in Ukraine. We're worried about this. We're worried about that. That is nothing compared to this. These guys, with with the technology that we've seen, they are far more capable than we are. And if it, for some reason, came to blows, which hasn't yet, and I don't think that they intend to, but if it came to blows, we would be the big losers, and we would be big losers. This is something to really worry about. If you want to stay up late at night worrying about what you see on the news, forget it. Worry about this one, this problem. (laughs) This is the problem. And I wish Congress was aware of that. I think they're becoming aware of that. But it's slow going. Yeah, well, we'll see. But I'm not holding my breath. I think independent researchers like yourself and others are just going to have to independently get to the bottom of this and well, I think I think that's the best thing that we can do is we can study this ourselves and try to figure out what's actually going on here and I think that once scientists are really involved then it shouldn't take too long for us to piece this together and I think that the last 5 minutes have come off very, very negative which I didn't really no, it's, it's I, mean, totally it, fine. I mean this is I mean in some sense this is an emergency and we still treat it like a joke and that's the problem Uh, We're treating an emergency like a joke. But at the same time, you know, there's something to not be too worried about. And that's the fact that if there's non-humans here, they've been here throughout human history. And they haven't tried to take over the planet. They haven't wiped out humans. This hasn't happened. And it's probably not going to happen. This doesn't seem to be their intention. Yeah, which could have positive reasons behind or there could be some darker reasons behind that too but I yeah it's not clear right what now. the situation is but and at times when i see you know i turn on the tv and everything's <laughs> going to heck i think you know we actually have the possibility for a deus ex machina event yes <laughs> where yes. we're saved by somebody yes. who knows something who's smarter than we are but, i mean not even we don't even need that possibility- them that possibility actually exists, which is what I kind of hold on to as hope. So, but but even the Deus Ex Machina, like we have, our government has the solution at its fingertips, which is this knowledge. Just reveal this knowledge, and you can get people to look up instead of at each other in terms yeah. of 
you know, all these wars and things. It'll like change that. our perspective dramatically, and it'll change yeah. our interactions with each other dramatically. And and maybe we can stop fighting over land. Yeah, just play that card. Just yeah. play that card. Why not? Because you're not going to have that much longer to play that card, because nobody trusts them. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, trust anyway, the, trust, yeah, trust is the big issue, and and this is another big mistake that's being made is that we already don't have a lot of trust in our government, and when it comes out that this has been going on for eighty years and we weren't told about it, the amount of trust is going to plummet. And then, and uh, I, I I already think I think after the pandemic, I think we're already at rock bottom. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm I'm worried that we can go further, but I'm also worried about academics. Academia, you know, scientists aren't trusted very much either. And at this point, we have been told by scientists that this is nonsense. And the scientists have just ignored the problem. Yeah, they haven't done the homework. They haven't done right. anything. Right. Uh, and so their job is to study stuff and they won't even touch it, the topic. So what happens when this turns out to be real? How trustworthy will scientists be seen? And this is going to hurt so many of our institutions when this all comes out. And I think that's part of the problem. It's revealing broad cracks in every segment of you know, institutional reality in right. the sense that, like, again, I'm an outsider. I don't publish papers. Like, I don't work in academia. But what I have noticed, though, is, so, you know, to get a dissertation, you stake your entire, in the next 30 years of your professional career on that dissertation. And if it is since proven to be wrong for any reason, your entire reputation is invalidated because of that, which is yeah. insane, which is insane, it right? Is insane. Like you should have the right to be like, not the right, but you should allow people to be wrong because what ends up happening is pe you know, look at archaeology and, you know, like <laughs> they just keep. It keeps getting overturned, but academia just keeps pounding its head against the wall because reputations must be maintained at all costs. And it's an area of reform for academia. You got to let people be wrong. You got to let people take risks. And that's, re that's really true. And that's another thing that we're seeing when writing grants. When we write grants to get money, and if you are in any way too far ahead of the pack, you aren't going to get funded because people who are in the pack are reviewing what you're doing and thinking, no, that's impossible. I don't know mm -hmm. how many grants I've written that I was told they were rejected because it's impossible and turns out that they were, it's totally possible and it works. Yeah. I've had that problem. I study exoplanets, planets around other stars, and we've had that problem getting grants funded for a decade. And, you know, one and of the James Webb, James Webb comes up and they're like, they're one everywhere. Of the first one of the first things we did, you know, we proposed a grant and we were going to try to measure the eccentricity of orbits of planets around close to stars. And that grant got rejected because everybody knows that planetary orbits circularize around when they get close to stars because of tidal forces. And like, well, that turns out it's not exactly true. Of course, this whole everybody knows, well, how many planets <laughs> we looked at <laughs> at the time, it was very few, hundreds, tops, and most of them weren't relevant. I mean, this happens time and time again, which is a big problem in science.
the way forward to get funding is to take a baby step. And in fact, what we're told, you know, by our advisors and what I tell my students is you work on a problem, you get it about 75% of the way solved without funding or using funding from another grant, which you really shouldn't be doing. And then you apply for funding to finish the 25%, because you need that 75% done to prove that it's going to work, which is just ridiculous. And it leads to all sorts of bad behavior, like using the money from one grant to fund another project, and which is what you have to do to make progress at sometimes. Fortunately, I haven't had enough grants to be able to do that, so I've not been in that situation. But others do. But you're only rewarded monetarily for making baby steps. And that means that the progress of science is really slow. Yeah, just incremental versus revolution becomes incremental yep yeah there's no giant discoveries because well we can't fund that that probably won't work well of course it probably won't work it won't work if you don't fund it so yeah right exactly there's a weird group of people i shouldn't say weird that's not fair to them eccentric is that a better word group of people who are trying to study anti-gravity and this work is mainly done in garages or done with their own money and on the side right and you know one of my colleagues had said well nobody in a garage is going to figure out anti-gravity and i had two responses to that it was first airplanes were invented in a garage (laughs) and basically and second if anybody figures out anti-gravity, it's going to be one of the people who are working on it, which are the people in the garages. People who don't work on it aren't going to discover it. So if it gets discovered, it's going to be that group of people. So then the answer will be, so if it gets discovered, it will have been discovered in a garage. So saying that is just ridiculous. That's not Unless it was already discovered. And unless it was, yeah, that's true too. So anyway, thank you, my friend. And I look forward to speaking with you again. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's video, please hit like and subscribe and also hit the notification button so you can be notified whenever I post new content. Thank you. Now, if you're enjoying the channel and you want to support it, there are several things you can do. In fact, there are five things you can do. The first thing you can do is just buy my books. I got plenty of books out in the market right now and I would prefer that folks buy a book rather than giving me direct support because they get something out of it. They have a real tangible product. The second way you can support me is by becoming a member on YouTube or becoming a patron on Patreon. And just go to either site and it'll explain everything. way you can support the channel is by checking out my merch site which is here there's plenty of stuff that you could get to support the channel and i'd appreciate that you you have it and you can wear it not only do you help support the channel but you also help promote the channel and i appreciate that the fourth way that you can support the channel and this is really easy is anytime you want to buy something on amazon literally just go to the description below and click on any link literally any link 
the channel gets a cut of that and it costs you no extra money. You just go through the link as I'm part of the Amazon Affiliates Club. The fifth and final way you can support the channel is through donations. Now, I don't prefer these because it's more of a expression of gratitude, but you don't really get anything out of it as a subscriber to the channel. However, if you decide to do these options, there's two options. There's Buy Me A Coffee, which is a separate site. And there's also, you can go through YouTube with either a Super Chat, Super Sticker, or a Super Thanks. Again, I prefer Buy Me A Coffee because that organization takes less money than Amazon does. But either way, I appreciate any support you are willing to give the channel. So thank you very much and keep watching. I really appreciate it.